0: MG is back and it's electric. The MG ZS EV. For just €28,995, the truly affordable, family friendly electric range. Go to MG.ie and recharge your soul.
1: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Doody. This week, we've asked four of our correspondents to record a short piece on something they witnessed in 2020, a moment or a theme that stood out in this most eventful of years. First, London editor Dennis Staunton recalls a political scandal, the ramifications of which are still being felt as the year draws to a close. It was a lovely afternoon in late
0: May, and the Downing Street garden was looking its best. It's often been the setting for prime ministerial press conferences, including the first joint appearance of David Cameron with Nick Clegg after they formed a coalition in 2010. But this press conference was to be unlike any other. Hi there. Sorry I'm late. The figure sitting alone at a small table in the garden was not Boris Johnson or any other elected official, but his chief advisor Dominic Cummings. Good afternoon, thank you for coming. Yesterday I gave a full account to the Prime Minister of my actions between the 27th of March and the 14th of April. For days, the opposition, newspapers of all stripes, and a growing number of Conservative MPs had been calling for Cummings to be sacked for apparently breaching the lockdown rules he had helped to write. But in Downing Street that day, Cummings defended his decision to drive more than 400 kilometres from London to Durham with his wife and young son when they thought she had coronavirus. The regulations made clear, I believe, that risks to the health of a small child were an exceptional situation. And I had a way of dealing with this that minimized risk to others. He admitted that while they were staying with his family in Durham, the couple drove about 27 kilometers with their four-year-old son to Barnard Castle and spent about 15 minutes in the town, stopping in a forest on the way back. We walked about 10 to 15 meters from the car to the, to the river bank nearby. We sat there for about 15 minutes. We had no interactions with anybody. He said that they made the hour-long round trip to test his eyesight before driving back to London because he feared it had been damaged by coronavirus. My wife was very worried, particularly given my eyesight had seemed to have been affected by the disease. But the guidelines that he helped to draft told the public that they could only leave their homes to run, cycle or walk for exercise or to get essential
1: supplies. Thousands of people watching this, ordinary families, have put up with all kinds of restrictions and hardships. What those people, I think, see here is that there's one rule for you and there's another rule for
2: them. Whatever legal nicety you may have to say that you haven't broken the letter of these regulations, you've driven a coach and horses through the spirit of them and that that is why people are
0: so cross about it. I don't agree. I think that that's not... You don't agree? No, I don't, I don't agree. Cummings expressed no regret over his actions. He didn't accept any responsibility for undermining the government's public health message. And he said he had never considered resigning. He said his future was for the Prime Minister to determine, making clear that he'd have to sack him if he wanted him to go. Although Johnson said at his own press conference inside the House later that nobody had an unconditional guarantee of continued employment in Downing Street, he left no doubt about his determination to keep Cummings in place. Are
1: you compromising the government's response to this pandemic because you can't cope in number 10 without Mr Cummings?
0: You had an extensive opportunity to... Uh, to talk uh, earlier on, to hear uh, earlier on about uh, how a member of my staff uh, tried to obey the guidelines. And I think you've, you, you've, you know, I, I heard your questions there and I thought they were, they were good and opposite. I really can't add anything to those. People will have to make uh, up their own minds. Uh, what I will say is it's absolutely your vital, absolutely vital that people uh, continue to observe the government's Public health message. At the time, Johnson's refusal to sack Cummings seemed to confirm how indispensable his chief advisor had become to the Prime Minister. But the scandal around Cummings triggered a collapse in the Conservatives' huge poll lead over Labour, from which it never recovered. In the months that followed, Cummings and his allies from the Vote Leave campaign appeared to tighten their grip on power in Downing Street. They intimidated ministers and officials, and they treated conservative MPs with open contempt. But although Cummings insisted that nobody except Johnson should be above him in the number 10 pecking order, he always refused to take on the role of chief of staff himself. This contradiction was behind his effort in November to install his sidekick Lee Kane, who had been director of communications, as chief of staff when the position became vacant. The power struggle that followed. Owed more to the Tudors than the West Wing, with Johnson's partner, Carrie Simmons, playing a central role in thwarting the Vote Leave faction. It ended with Cummings and Kane both leaving Downing Street, Cummings choosing to walk out through the front door.
3: Non too subtly carrying a cardboard box, that famous metaphor of leaving a job for good. But as
1: you say...
0: A bashful grey eminence
1: hogging the limelight to the last. Dennis Staunton is our London editor. Next, our correspondent in Brussels, Naomi O'Leary, reflects on Europe's response to the COVID-19 pandemic.
4: 2020 was the year that the European Union stared disaster in the face.
1: Europe
0: is now the epicentre of the global coronavirus pandemic.
4: Coronavirus cases in Europe returning to levels last seen in March.
2: Italy's Prime Minister warns the coronavirus crisis could lead to the collapse of the European Union.
4: Leaders were slow to react to the COVID-19 pandemic across the Western world, and the EU was no different. In the initial weeks when the first deaths began to be registered in Italy, it was nakedly clear that the situation was worsening at a faster rate than the institutional ability to react. They're fighting a war here and they're losing.
0: The sheer numbers of people succumbing to the coronavirus is overwhelming every hospital in northern Italy.
4: The powers of the European Commission are tightly circumscribed and exclusively national areas of rule are jealously guarded by member states. Health and borders are strictly national concerns. This trapped the EU institutions awkwardly between expectations that they should act and structural limits on what they could do. Friday the 13th of March was the day it all began to fall apart. Slovakia, Malta and the Czech Republic abruptly closed their borders to outsiders. It was the start of a cascade of border closures between member states across Europe that unpicked some of the EU's most treasured achievements over the course of a weekend.
2: And here I want to be very clear. The single market has to function. It is not good when member states take unilateral action
0: because it always causes a domino effect. And ultimately, it amounts to reintroducing internal borders at a time when solidarity between member states
4: is needed. It was uncoordinated. The capitals weren't speaking to each other. EU citizens found themselves stranded, barred from entry into member states that they needed to pass through to get home. Truck routes snarled up, Baltic states had to send ships to rescue their people stranded on the border of Germany and Poland. There was an ugly scramble for medical supplies. When Italy appealed for help, China responded before its fellow
2: EU member states. 300 intensive care doctors from China arrived in Italy Wednesday, bringing with them field experience and much-needed supplies like ventilators and masks
4: a propaganda coup for Beijing that stoked profound bitterness in Italy, a core but sometimes fragile member state that Brussels feared could even turn against EU membership itself. This was the EU witnessing the crumbling of its treasured freedom of movement, the breakdown of solidarity, and the potential for spiralling economic damage if supply chains were blocked. It was this moment that forged a steely determination to confront the crisis that would prove the bloc's redemption. The Commission quickly did what it had the power to do, easing strictures on Member State borrowing and spending limits and releasing whatever funds it had on hand into addressing the crisis. It began shoveling money towards pharmaceutical companies to speed the development of vaccines while pre booking early doses in a gamble that now appears far sighted.
3: The first dose of optimism in what has been a dismal year. A 90 year old woman in the UK has become the first person in the world to receive a clinically approved coronavirus vaccine.
4: But above all, a desire to pull together to address the unprecedented circumstances of the pandemic resulted in more than one landmark achievement for the bloc. Five days of all-night negotiations between national leaders in July produced a milestone recovery package based on something that was previously unthinkable – joint borrowing. The President of the European Council, Charles Michel, emerged from the talks so delighted he seemed almost giddy in a sharp contrast to the exhaustion of the journalists who were covering the summit.
3: This is a good deal, this is a strong deal, and most importantly, this is the right deal for Europe right now.
4: There was a feeling that the leaders didn't know when they would be able to meet again. Combined with terror at the potential economic implications, it produced the landmark result.
0: We have a lot of work ahead of us, but tonight is a big step forward towards recovery.
4: It took until December for the nearly 2 trillion euro budget and recovery fund package to be definitively approved. But when it was, it came with yet another milestone. EU countries committed to cutting emissions by 55% compared to 1990 levels in the next decade. Another previously unthinkable agreement. The fact that we were able to commit, one day before the UN summit, to a joint European reduction target of 55% by 2030 is, in my view, a very important result. It was worth losing a night's sleep to achieve this. I don't want to imagine what would have happened if we hadn't been able to achieve such a result. The recovery deal means that they may have the money to do it too. The grants and loans that will arrive from next year will be tied to obligations to spend them on green and digital projects to transform EU economies. Coming out of a bleak year, that looks like hope.
1: Naomi O'Leary is our Europe correspondent. Our next piece is from reporter Sally Hayden. Sally is based in Uganda and writes about Africa, where recorded coronavirus infection rates have not been as high as those in Europe, but where the impact of the pandemic is deeply felt nonetheless.
2: The most notable moment of this year for me wasn't anything you read about in the newspaper. It came on an afternoon in September when I heard that a woman I knew had died. Between March and October this year, I was in Uganda, one of the poorest countries in the world. Uganda's borders shut the same weekend that its first coronavirus case was announced, and they didn't reopen for more than six months.
0: The airport has been closed,
2: and the closure will take effect from midnight. I was connected to a chan by a friend of a friend, She was young and frighteningly thin, with both tuberculosis and a newborn baby. I never interviewed her because of journalistic rules which say you shouldn't reward someone you're reporting on. Instead, I helped her out with money, enough to buy the occasional bags of maize flour and beans while paying for milk for her child. Across most of Africa, the pandemic never spread at the same speed it did in Europe, but it still had a devastating effect. In Uganda, a nationwide transport ban was imposed with one hour's notice and no provision for emergency healthcare, meaning sick children and pregnant women died trying to reach hospitals. Police were brutal about enforcing the new curfew and other coronavirus restrictions, which led to more deaths. Many businesses were closed and traders ordered to stop operating. The ubiquitous boda-boda drivers were no longer allowed to take passengers. Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, announced early on that anyone caught distributing food to people in need without going through the government would be charged with attempted murder.
4: When you try to distribute food or money in such a situation, people gather around you. Many people can be infected in that process. It would therefore have caused the sickness or death of those people.
2: Critics said this was an attempt to stop the opposition from garnering favour ahead of next month's elections. And government aid barely stretched outside capital city Kampala. Even in the city, it was of poor quality and only lasted a week. The result was that people quickly began to starve. In Gulu, the northern city I stayed in during the lockdown, I met many hungry people speaking to mothers who encouraged their children to constantly drink water so their empty stomachs felt full, or the elderly, who were reduced to begging from neighbours. With so many people affected at once, charity dried up. Unable to work, paying rent was also impossible. Between March and June, more than 40,000 people were evicted from their homes across East Africa, according to the Norwegian Refugee Council, but the real number could be much higher. Achan was one of them. She couldn't work anymore, and her relatives had lost their own incomes. She shared a small room with her baby, and I found out later that when she fell behind on rent, her landlord locked the door leaving all her belongings inside. For me, her subsequent death epitomised all the deaths we will never hear about. The hidden victims of this pandemic. The ones who will never be counted.
1: Sally Hayden is our reporter in Africa. For our final piece from Berlin correspondent Derek Scali, we have something entirely different. Dirk selected as his moment of the year his visit to the rebuilt Prussian Palace in the German capital.
3: I cycle everywhere in Berlin and sometimes on a street, if the light's right, my mind's eye imagines what used to be there. The ravages of war and vicious post-war planning are everywhere in this city, but nowhere quite like around the historic city centre Along the river Spree, most of what survived wartime bombing here was cleared out by the new East German regime. They were pursuing their new socialist wet dream city. The 500-year Prussian Palace was one of the buildings that had to go in 1950. But now it's back, reconstructed in detail great detail, six hundred millions worth of detail. Anyone who knows the Berliners know they have big mouths and an opinion on everything. But even most Berliners I know are completely perplexed at what to make of this new old building. I visited it several times and I'm starting to fear the rebuilt Prussian palace is a very expensive identity crisis, one that speaks volumes about modern Germany. You first catch sight of the palace, officially known as the Humboldt Forum, as you head from the Brandenburg Gate down the Unterdane linden Boulevard. Just as the street bends to the left, the palace of the German Kaiser sits once more at an angle, glowing yellow when the sun strikes the plaster facade. Get closer and you see a copper dome, so new it's still brown and not green, it gleams in the sunlight and around the windows and under the roof are scores of Baroque ornamentation and statues. Everything's been reconstructed from photographs of the original palace that was dynamited in 1950 for political reasons. What stood here next, the East German Palace, a parliament and concert hall, was demolished 15 years ago, again, for political reasons. So given how many buildings come and go on this site, when I watched the builders lay the last paving stones in early December, I wondered, how long this time?
2: Humboldt Forum, now, how are you?
1: Welcome to Humboldt Forum. Welcome to the Humboldt
2: Forum. Humboldt Forum is a very warm welcome to the Humboldt
4: Forum. A very warm welcome to the Humboldt
2: Forum. Welcome to Humboldt Forum. Welcome to Humboldt Forum.
3: The new building, the Humboldt Forum, it's a it's a confusing mishmash, three sides baroque reconstruction. On one side, a very abrupt modern grid-style facade by the Italian architect
1: herzlich willkommen. Very good evening to you and a warm welcome to the
0: digital opening of the Humboldt problem. I'm Mitri Serin and I'm standing right in front of it. And from here, I've got a spectacular view. It's good that you're here. We're very much looking forward to it. And now take a deep breath because I'm going to take you right into the heart of the building.
3: Walking around the entirely modern interior, it has more floor space than four ga pitches. It's 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 a fascinating, disconcerting experience. Um, there's two spectacular collections on display from the nethological and the Asian museums, but it, it takes a while to realise what is wrong with this space. If you look around at first glance, it's it's sort of anonymous modern office block. You know, airy glass atriums, white walls, white floors. It's, it's good for an insurance company, and if you ask me, utterly impractical for a public museum. But the airiness is immediately cluttered by the requirements of public spaces, so fire doors, banisters, accessibility features. And then there is some just bizarre design choices, hundreds of white lamps that stick out of the ceiling like whitehead spots. The building, I realised early on, it's trying to hard to be relaxed, but it's extremely restless. I think that reflects the original sin of the entire project. Conservative traditionalists who pushed this project and in 2002 they got the German state behind them, they insisted the only structure that would work on this site was the original historical structure, the palace. But a century after it all vanished, most Germans remain deeply ambivalent about the Kaiser, about imperial Germany and all that goes with it. So getting around that, if the Conservatives wanted that to be built, they had to come up with some idea, and they came up with this idea of a museum for world countries. But uh, everyone knows that if you want good design, form has to follow function. Not here. We have function following form. We have a museum complex built and run by Germans who claim to be open to the world and anxious for cultural, intercultural dialogue. But like so many Germans of a certain generation, still burdened by the Nazi past, the people behind this building, the Humboldt form, they're completely ill at ease discussing themselves, their own culture, their values. What kind of dialogue then do you want to have if you actually don't know who you are and what you are offering yourself? The building seems to want to celebrate the Prussian past while apologizing for it. I guess you could call it sorry not sorry architecture. It's early days, of course, and museums need time to learn, to breathe and to grow. Uh, And at the moment, because of the pandemic, they're not actually open to the public. The Berliners, they may grow used to their palace, um, particularly if it helps reactivate the whole post-war dead zone around it. It's barely there what weekend and I have to say, I've already gotten used to cycling past it.
1: Derek Scully is our Berlin correspondent. That's all for this week. Thanks to Dennis, Naomi, Sally and Derek for their contributions today. We'll be back with one more episode this year when I'll talk to foreign policy expert Tom Wright next week about what to expect from the incoming Biden administration in the White House. From all of us on the
3: Worldview team, we wish you a safe and happy Christmas.